0: I was a member of the Sullivanians from 1973 to 1979. My involvement inextricably altered my life, and this hour-and-a-half podcast tells the events of my life and chronicles my involvement and the aftermath. The collapse of the group has been documented before in several news and magazine articles, a dissertation, and most recently, a book but never a first-person accounting, and this is what you will hear on this podcast. An artist since I was a child, later earning a master's from Brooklyn College with a passion for writing poetry, the genesis of this podcast began over 10 years ago when I wrote a memoir. Years passed as I tried to shop the book, but couldn't find neither an agent nor a publisher. The book languished on my computer, and then, with the advent of iMovie, I used my memoir as the scaffolding for a documentary that became an official selection of New Filmmakers New York 2020 and a Spotlight Documentary Bronze Award winner 2020 for artistic merit. When this creative journey began, the Sullivanians were largely forgotten, except perhaps by the several hundred former members, 500 at its zenith, many of whom, like myself, survived the control wrought by the institute and therapists that 40 years later still resonate and begs to be heard. The full documentary can be seen on my YouTube channel, Shell Fine One. Thank you.
1: In March 1973, a New York Journal reporter who had infiltrated the group, wrote a serialized account for the magazine. I remember reading the first article with some curiosity, as Rachel had dated someone who had worked with someone who had a friend who had been in the group. But at the time, it struck me as odd, and I dismissed it as sensational journalism. Getting in. CUNY's new open admission policy had been in effect for two years, when I was accepted into Queens College visual arts program with a full scholarship. There was no prerequisites and my priorities were straight. I had no intention of joining anything, but then Clotho, Atropos, and Lachesis conjured up Jackson Mori, and put him in my path, and he opened the gateway to the Sullivanians. I had been given advanced placement because of my previous college credits, and though officially not quite a sophomore, I could enroll in classes not usually open to incoming freshmen. That's how I wound up in advanced color theory, where Jackson Morey was the graduate assistant. Though not conventionally handsome, his lopsided features seemed haphazardly tossed together until he smiled, and then his broad face fell into alignment. It was then that you noticed his high cheekbones and the flecks of gold in his deep-set brown eyes. He was checking programs on the first day of classes, making sure that everyone was in the right place. Dressed in denim overalls, the ever-present Dan and Coffee Yogurt bulging from his back pocket, I watched him shake that contents and drink it down. He was powerfully built with a syrupy Midwestern twang that got to me right off, and from then on, I couldn't resist thoughts of him, though he never seemed any more interested in me than he did the other girls in the class. And they did look like girls. When I stared at my face in the mirror, I saw a 24-year-old, almost divorced woman, her feelings in a muddle. Alone, I silently mocked him as stuck up and opinionated, just because he'd had a short story published as an undergraduate. But then I'd see him in class, and my longing would become a hand around my heart like a lemon being squeezed dry. I was pinching the top of my hand every 20 minutes just to concentrate in class. My mother had been right about one thing. Traveling a round trip to Manhattan from my Upper East Side sublet every day was exhausting, and there I was, on the train platform, wistfully watching the E-train i just missed, with its glowing letter disappearing down the tunnel, when I spotted Jackson. He was coming down the stairs, and though I tried to look the other way, he gave me a jaunty little wave and walked in my direction. Hi there, Cora. I thought that was you. But I wasn't sure, he said, making eye contact. You going to the city? The station was quiet now, a momentary lull before the arrival of the next train through the tunnel. Yes, I live on 73rd Street, East 73rd Street, I said. With your parents, he asked. Parents, God forbid. I'm older than I look. I did grow up around here, though. I've been married, and now I'm separated. Two years ago, I used to live with a good friend, a woman friend, But then she went to Italy, and I moved into my own place, and finally I had enough saved, and, well, here I am. That's impressive, he said. You're right. I thought you were 18 or 19 years old. It's funny that we've never met on the train before. I mean, different schedules, I guess. I guess, I said. Actually, I'm going to work. I have a great job as a research assistant in the Children's Learning Carnival and I also work with gifted students from schools around Manhattan. That's where I'm going now. It's pretty neat and better than moving home with my mother, I said, babbling on. So what about you, I asked him, stopping just short of describing every intimate detail of the last five years of my life. Well, he took a breath. Let's see. I live on the Upper West Side, but listen, before I get into all that, I've been meaning to tell you that I think you have a really great color sensibility. He smiled then, and the roller coaster I'd been on took a sudden dip, leaving me momentarily breathless. I caught myself on the updraft, and a moment later, the F train roared into the station. The Sullivanians, as reported by Bob Meyerson. The Sullivan Institute was founded in 1957 by Saul Newton, an Abraham Lincoln Brigade veteran with a B.A. in philosophy, and by his second wife, psychiatrist Jane Pierce. They co-authored The Conditions of Human Growth, a bastardized tome pulled from the works of Harry Stack Sullivan's interpersonal theories of psychiatry. They had once been affiliated with the prominent Allison White Institute, However, when censored for issues concerning some questionable practices, they left with a small cadre of like-minded therapists and their patients, forming the nucleus of the newly founded Sullivanian Institute and its controversial training program for lay therapists. The training program consisted of therapists with no psychological background, and in many cases, no college degree. Newton called it therapy for the masses and supervised the trainee program together with Gettys and the four other psychiatrists associated with the Institute. In the beginning, the patients were young people in their 20s, though this changed over time with most needing a place to live. Soon, as directed by Newton, the lay therapists were facilitating meetings between their clients, Patients, and the suggestion was made to join together in groups of four or fives and rent large pre-war apartments on Manhattan's Upper West Side to be near the Institute, which was located on West 81st Street. The self-named group was born. Twice-weekly apartment or house meetings were mandatory, often starting at 11 or 12 midnight. The meetings could go on for hours and were used to discuss financing, shopping, scheduling, and interpersonal problems, but more often than not, roommates would talk about their therapy sessions. Information learned at these house meetings was reported back to the therapist and then to Newton, who used the information to monitor and influence patient and apartment activities. Therapists dated patients and group sex was commonplace with excessive drinking and the wide abuse of Valium. No decision from whom to date or which job to take seemed to be made without tacit or explicit therapist approval. This highly directive therapy style program helped to control group members who were expected to keep their Sullivanian life a secret while in the real world. Patients were directed to spend as little time as possible with anyone not in therapy and to carefully schedule their time to be with other group members and to never sleep alone. Families, especially mothers, were considered toxic, and if you did keep in contact with your family, you could likely suffer a mental breakdown that might end in suicide, they were warned. Mothers in the group were persuaded to have their children raised by others and sent away to boarding schools. Jackson and I began to travel back to Manhattan together every afternoon after class. Eventually, our travels ended and evolved into what Jackson called work dates. These dates were always at his apartment, usually surrounded by one or more of his four roommates, and sometimes their dates. It was in this way that I was slowly indoctrinated into the world of Sullivanian therapy and the group. In contrast to my tiny studio apartment with no tub and the shower in the kitchen, Jackson's apartment was majestic with its four separate bedrooms, a huge eat-in kitchen, and maid's room that was used for bicycle and sports equipment storage a pantry, and and two-and-a-half bathrooms, a formal dining room that was going to be divided into two more rooms, and a large wood-paneled library that served as their command and communal workspace, the common room. At the center of the common room were four makeshift desks, large wooden doors sitting atop filing cabinets, fitted together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. You couldn't see where one began and the other ended, and the surrounding wall and floor space was given over to a hodgepodge, most particularly to the male gender, basketball, sneakers, typewriters, piles of clothes, plants, and hundreds of books. Adding due to the collective clutter were two five-high stereo speakers and hundreds of albums, courtesy of one roommate, a freelance reviewer. Another roommate was Jackson, the art student, and there was his easel, his tubes of paint and brushes. Two sessions a week were mandatory and anyone involved working or going to school, their day went well into the night with all kinds of dates, work dates, dinner dates, drink dates, sleepover dates, and breakfast dates. It was strongly suggested by the therapist that all this activity be kept track of in case of an emergency, and in Jackson's apartment, a large blackboard had been hung in the kitchen wall for just that purpose. No one seemed to want to spend any time alone, and like his roommate, Jackson had no contact with his family. It was not a topic he talked about. It just was. The only real information I knew about Jackson was that he had come to New York from Ann Arbor last year when he was accepted into the graduate program at Queens College. He got a consultation with one of the psychiatrists, and he's been in therapy for about a year. In contrast, I was open, maybe too open about myself. I told him about my relationship with mother, my father's abandonment, how my therapist had encouraged me to call my father, and how my timing had sucked and my mother's reaction to the news, how she'd freaked out and told me everything I'd been avoiding hearing about my father for the last 24 years. After a month of work dates, I'd become resigned that our relationship was going to be strictly platonic, even though my infatuation had become a veritable smorgasbord of desire. Whatever you like, there seemed to be no hope that that desire would ever be realized. But that all changed one Friday in late October 1973. After working for several hours, Jackson suggested a food break, so we headed to the kitchen, where I slid into one of the black director's chairs that surrounded the round wooden table at the center of the kitchen, and I grabbed an apple off the top of a large pile of fruit. Jackson was making himself a sandwich at the counter, and then... He asked me a question that threw me off guard. So, how are things between you and your mother now? You sounded pretty angry when you told me about that the other day. What? Did I sound angry, I mean, I asked, kind of defensive? Wouldn't you be? Is anger verboten in your therapy? I mean, I wasn't aware that I was angry, I shot back defensively, but I guess you're right, maybe I was. My mother still thinks my r- art is a hobby and even though I'm putting myself through school without a penny from her, thank you very much, but not much has changed since my separation. She still doesn't get it and it takes every step I take to be independent personally. She never understood that I needed to be on my own my own, in the first place. I thought she'd accept marriage and once I was married, I felt committed to making it work. At least, I think, I tried to give it a chance. We were just too young. Anyway, there I go again. This stuff is really boring. It's not boring, Jackson said. Not boring at all. And anger or feelings of anger are very much topic in therapy, he explained. As he talked, his voice had a calming effect on me. Good to know. So, where is everyone, I asked, changing the subject. I think this is the first time I've been here with no one else around. Well, it happens sometimes, he said, but we do keep schedules on the chalkboard. So, how did you guys meet? Well, we knew each other from around the group, and then this apartment formed after the summer. The past, This past summer, you mean? Really? I would never have guessed. You all seem so, I don't know, organized. A lot of apartments form after the summer. Then, after a momentary pause, he turned the subject back to me. So, how are things in your therapy going? I guess he saw a shift in my posture because he quickly added, I know it sounds strange, me asking you about therapy and all, but around here we talk about our sessions all the time, especially during a house meeting. But if it feels weird to you, that's okay. Jackson had moved to the table to sit next to me. His sandwich lay half-eaten, on the countertop. He reached for my hand and said, You know, Cora, remember when we were trying to make all those dates and I couldn't find free time? I want you to know I really wanted to see you, but I'd made those other dates weeks ago, and I couldn't change them. It's really frowned upon here. At that moment, I realized I had mistaken his commitment to the group as disinterest in me. I said I understood, but I really didn't, because it didn't make sense to keep dates with one person when you'd rather be with someone else. But then he asked me to stay with him that night, and it didn't matter any more what I thought. "'Can you do that? Don't you have somewhere to go?' I asked incredulously. I wouldn't have asked if I did. "'Listen,' he said. "'Let's make some dates right now, okay?' Then he grabbed his date book, A Small Green Leather-Bound Affair, from where it was lying on the countertop between the boxes of Rice Krispies and Frosted Flakes and Cheerios. He popped off the rubber band and quickly thumbed through the pages. How about this Sunday night and the following Wednesday? But that will have to be late. Can you come here? He went on and on, ruffling some more pages, and in five minutes we'd made a month of dates, which he jotted down on a paper napkin for me. He leaned in and he kissed me and then he took my hand and smiled. Don't you think it's time for you to get a date book of your own, he asked, laughing. Then, still holding my hand, he pulled me towards him and we kissed again, longer and deeper, and moments later, we were in his room, shutting the door behind us. I didn't know it at the time, but Jackson was being pressured by his roommates and his therapist to bring me into the group. I understood this firsthand years later when I had a boyfriend outside the group, and I became the target of my own apartment's wrath. But in that moment, ignorance was bliss, and I was unaware of how dearly I would pay for this wondrous feeling, nor that I was losing myself to the hive.